0: Hello, welcome to the Comparative Agility Podcast. My name is Simon Hilton, and in this series, we'll be talking with world leaders in agility to help understand how we can make continuous improvement a part of your company's DNA. In this episode, I talk with Jorgen Hesselberg, the co-founder of Comparative Agility and the author of Unlocking Agility. One of the best books on Agile transformation that I've ever read. In this episode, we talk more about how continuous improvement is becoming a core part of any Agile transformation, but also the five pillars which every organization will go through to improve and sustain agility over the long term. Recording. Here we are. Hey, Jorgen, how are you? Very good. How are you doing, Simon? Good, good, good. Um, Finally able to get together and have a chat about uh, what's something that's really important to me, and I I know it's important to you. So um, yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, So today we're doing a little bit of a chat about continuous improvement and overall team health and how this is a really important topic to me because... I've uh, been working in agile teams for decades, um, and it seems to be the thing that's always left to last, the thing that's always thought about at the end and not, you know, at the start. Because um, we're so busy and focused on the work and what we're producing that we almost think about the team and how we're working together as an afterthought. So um, when I came across everything that you're doing, I was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is really important." It seems to be the thing that's always been missing. So. Um, that's why, you know, even reading your book, like I'm looking at agility, it filled in a lot of the gaps for me um, in what I was seeing in, in the real world. So um, how did you come to continuous improvement?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think you're right. It is one of those things that sort of um, is usually viewed as an afterthought. But at the end of the day, I think that's really what agility is all about. You know, if people mm-hmm. were to sort of ask me in a very simple way, you know, what, what, what is Agile? It's, it's really about, you know, being better today than you were yesterday. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, that's what it's about. It doesn't matter what kind of tools you have or processes you use. But at the end of the day, that's that's what this is about. It's about learning faster and then, then the competition and, and keep keep improving. So yeah, I, I think this has always been really important. I think it's been one of those underlying things that we sometimes don't talk about explicitly. Uh, and sometimes I think it becomes a little bit esoteric and abstract. So I think what mm-hmm. I've been trying to do in, in my book and, and also with, with Comparative Agility, the tool is to, is to bring this to the forefront, bring this, uh, make it really concrete in fact and actionable. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, once people understand what they can do better, And and where those areas are, I think we can actually take action and do something about it. That's when that sort Mm. of, uh, I guess we can call it a culture starts forming, because ultimately that's what it comes down to.
0: Yeah, and and the key word that you use there is change. You know, and that's I I agree. That's the heart of agile. I mean, some people say to me, it's uh, the the term they use is navigating. Change at pace, but the, the point is the change part, where humans aren't so good at change. Uh, we we sometimes stick to things from the past. We fear for the future. So having an actual culture where change is accepted and it's a part of who we are is actually really really important and is hard to come by.
1: So. Yes, it is. I mean, in fact, humans are terrible at change. I think this there's been, there's been some <laughs> research coming out that's just really scary. I think this was from this was from a medical study where they found that. You know, people, heart patients that come to their doctor and and the doctor would literally say that, you know, you're now in dire straits. So unless you make these changes to your diet, you're literally going to put your life at risk. Mm. Nine out of ten people will not make the changes in their diet. I mean, even when they know that their life is at risk. So that just tells Mm. you how difficult it is to change and and imagine this at scale.
0: And at worst, like you can make the change, but then you just go back to the way you were, even though, you know, making the change stick, that's really, really important as well. And that requires a regular rhythm and and reinforcement of what you're doing is right. So
1: You're completely right. And that's what that environment uh, plays in. That's why this is so hard to do alone. Uh, that's why mm. it's so hard to do for a team it's really the whole program the whole organization that needs to be be, be with this uh, like from the top The the leadership needs to be part of this too so uh, th- yeah. that's why agile transformations are so hard
0: um and as you said like making it a real part of the company you the way you like to put it is make it part of the company's dna it, it is who we are it's in every cell of who we are to make that we we, we embrace change and we move forward with that so there's some good reasons behind it. Oh, there's our beautiful faces. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think we've reduced ourselves, but we have, let's do it again. So Jorgen, you're the co-founder of A Comparative Agility and uh, the author of Unlocking Agility, one of the best books on agile transformation I've ever met. and I recommend it to everyone who I talk to. So, yeah. Um, you know, that goes without saying. Uh, and my name is Simon Hilton. I'm an Agile coach and head of project management here at a company called Willow, but worked at a lot of the Agile transformations in uh, the biggest telcos and grocery stores here in Australia. Okay, so the point here is uh, what we're trying to talk about is that change. Um, and in my eyes, effective and productive teams are the company's greatest asset. But those organizations, those teams, and the needs from them are changing all around them. Um, there's a greater demand on employees that well, employees themselves demand more autonomy and mastery of the career um, but also the changing markets around them need to they need to be able to adapt to those changes quite quite quickly and um, I think what is most telling is this statistic from Harvard Business Review that says that 50% sorry 52% research shows that since 2002 since, the two, uh, since 2000. 52% of companies in the Fortune 500 have either gone bankrupt, been acquired, or ceased to exist as a result of digital disruption. Um, that's a pretty staggering number when you think about it, um, considering those companies have probably been around for decades upon decades before, but nearly half of them have disappeared in the last 10 to 15 years, because um, this was released in 2017. So, and really, what they're putting it down to is change and being able yes. to adapt to change.
1: Exactly. And I think what, part of what this underscores is that uh, this whole that agility, the whole idea of continuously adapting to change, like you said, it's not a, it's not a cool thing. It's not a uh, sort of, okay, this is the flavor of the month kind of thing. It's actually a matter of survival. It, it's no longer uh, something you do just because your competition does it. You do it because if you, if you like to actually continue to exist as an organization, you need to take this seriously.
0: Yes. So what we have is, and on the next slide is your five pillars of Agile transformation that come from your book, Unlocking Agility. Uh, first being technology, which is where I think a lot of people think Agile just sits at all and it doesn't belong anywhere else. But when you start to actually look deeper into it, to be successful, to, sorry, to not just be an Agile team, but to be a successful Agile organization, these five pillars all become really important. And, and what people will notice is that only one of them is technology. The rest of it is all organizational design people leadership culture very traditional and almost foundational parts of any business Um, the two that we're going to focus on here are people and culture um, because they are really at the team level of um, how you can improve the team over time
1: yeah this this has been one of those uh, when i first came up with these five was back in 2008 2009 and, and i've been trying to battle-test these many times and I, I haven't really found a better way to to articulate you know, agile transformation in terms of the main pillars. There's two underlying parts of this, I can say. You know, mm-hmm. one of those is customer and the other is purpose. But those are sort of, in a sense, external to this, if you, if you know what I mean. I think these mm-hmm. are the five that sort of affects the organization specifically. And then I think that the purpose and the, and, and, the, and the customer is sort of what underlines the why behind all of it. And yeah. I think the idea around customer and purpose is interesting because sometimes, you know, that can be kind of a, you know, what's, what, what starts first? Does the customer come first or does purpose come first? And, and, and that's really interesting because it's not an easy answer to that. I think it depends on the organization a lot. And, mm. and it's, uh, you know, if you, if you ask some people, they always say, oh, we, we start our, with our customer. You know, the customer is always right. And, and that essentially becomes our purpose, you know, to, to please the customer. Uh, and then the other people who will say, "Well, no, we we actually we start with the purpose, and then if a certain customer doesn't believe in that particular purpose, that is okay with us. We we, mm-hmm. we don't want any part of that. Um, a lot of these sort of altruistic, you know, and I think especially when Silicon Valley had a little bit of a, I guess, a, more of an altruistic view. I think right now we view them more as a, a, a as a pure capitalistic mechanism. But back in the day, you yes. know, when, when you hear things like "Do no evil," right? Google used to say these things. Uh, it was purpose and and then all the things that kind of came from that would be okay that's our purpose and then what are the, the products and technologies and the customers we can we can serve knowing that part of our purpose here is to do no evil I think later on we've seen that that may have Changed slightly. I'm not saying they do evil on purpose, but you can also see that they will compromise on that when they do business in China, for instance. They'll say, "Well,
0: yes.
1: you know, privacy is really important, except for when it affects yeah. our bottom
0: line." The um, first one is people, and uh, it's I think almost we've talked about it the whole way is that leaning into change, um, and this is just being okay. That growth and change is a part of life. Growth and change is a part of who we are. It's a part of our DNA um so it's what a lot of people term a growth mindset but it's it's really hard to just uh i'm really interested in your point of view here because it's really hard just to say someone have a growth mindset um <laughs> <laughs> you know here's your growth mindset card you know you now you have a growth mindset it's something which is quite innate and that's why it's interesting when you say it's part of the company's dna it's almost it's got to be part of a person's dna as well
1: yeah it does and i, and I think this is where I think leaders play a really important role because they, they, they in many ways, can sort of affect uh, how people are being evaluated, how people are being rewarded, uh, how people are being incented to do certain things. And I think when it comes to growth mindset, you know, Carol Dweck was the professor who came up with that. Uh, you know, part of what she found by doing research in, in uh, kindergartners and, and later on in, in, in people in middle school was that, you know, if you praise people for being smart it's like oh you're such a smart person and that that could be have a temporarily positive effect but ultimately that person became very frustrated and ultimately did not become a very high performer because the person then essentially had a fixed mindset in the sense that okay i'm smart that's why i'm good and then if i can't figure something out well then maybe i'm not smart enough and you can't really change intelligence like you're either smart or you're you're not so smart i mean you can it's not so much you can do about that particular part you just kind of feel like you're failing because you're not smart enough but if you praise someone because they work hard and you said you know hey you did really well you worked really hard on that it changed quite a bit of things because what happened then is that the person would say oh the reason i succeeded is because i worked hard and and i kept getting better and better and then when things started getting tough later on in life, uh, these people who had sort of grown up with that type of mindset, they would say, well, okay, I didn't make this work. I am having some challenges. Well, you know what? That just means I need to work harder. And it means I need to try some more. And even though I failed here, I can try again. And I learned from that fa- failure and, and I could keep trying. And it was it was more of an experimental, more of a learning mindset that uh, Carl Dreck discovered by, by being able to sort of praise the idea of learning as opposed to you're smart that's why you're succeeding and and I think that's a that's a really interesting way of looking at things and I think I think Nadia Satella has been the person who's probably maybe the one who's kind of popularized this in business you know he used this very consciously at uh, the transformation with Microsoft being very Mm -hmm. clear that you know, We're gonna embrace this idea that if you, if you fail along the way, it doesn't mean that you don't have the ability. It just means that we need to work harder in terms of learning faster so that we can continuously evolve the way we think of these problems and not just say that, oh, well, you, you couldn't make it work because you weren't smart enough, uh, mm-hmm. because you weren't good enough. Uh, it became, I guess this goes very nicely with psychological safety because it then becomes safe to fail. Because if mm. you fail, it's not because you're stupid. You failed because you didn't try the right thing or because you need to just try again. It yes. becomes less dangerous to not get the right answer right away. And I think that's very often what it comes down to.
0: Another part of people that we, that, sorry, another part of people inside your pill is just embracing that diversity within teams. And we're not necessarily talking about demographic diversity, but diversity of opinion, diversity of skills in order to, uh, to get a, uh, a better understanding of problems and how to solve them coming in and I think that's it comes down to a slightly a bit more of a lateral thinking technique where there's many different ways you could solve this problem but it doesn't necessarily um it's not really apparent on the first uh, first uh viewing of it so it's important to think about the problem in much of a, breadth, uh, a broad way to come to the best solution Yes,
1: I I completely agree. And this is the beautiful thing about, you know, about agility is that we understand that uh, what we're trying to do here is to learn and to learn, you need to have a a broad marketplace of ideas, you need to have a a Mm -hmm. broad perspective. And you just don't get that if everyone talks the same, thinks the same, looks the same. Uh, you, You need to come from different schools. Uh, you need to come from different countries. You need to perhaps speak different languages. I think it's, it's beautiful that you, you, you may look different. You may think different. You, you may approach problems differently. All of these things are, 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 are actually very beneficial. Now, we should be, we should be clear because I think sometimes uh, people think, uh, you know, we, we go overboard sometimes and we say, oh, the diversity is the answer to everything. Yeah. Diversity is not necessarily the most effective way to solve problems when there are simple problems to solve. And yes. I think that, that's where the research has been pretty clear. If you're if you're trying to build a bridge or something, you're probably not going to do great by having a bunch of basket weavers and <laughs> you know people who have nothing to do with building yeah. bridges. Uh, yes. You'll bring in those architectural engineers and you'll probably do better. But in complex situations like we're dealing with here, when we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, not knowing, right? right? This is the whole idea of embracing the thing yes. you don't know. Yeah. Then you need that diversity of thought. And that means that you might not be, that doesn't mean that you'll build the solution the quickest, but you will build the best solution and you will build Mm. the most innovative solution. And that's where that diversity is so beautiful. So,
0: yeah. And the next pillar we want to talk about is culture. Um, Now this is a very nuanced word across the world, across companies, all those kinds of things. Um, But uh, the culture model you talk about in your book is this one by Schneider. Just give us a walkthrough of this, please. Yeah.
1: So, so Schneider, he, he, William Schneider, he, uh, he wrote a book called The Reengineering Alternative. And essentially, what he was doing, he was looking at different companies. He was looking at the way that they structured themselves, uh, what type of leadership they have, uh, and he sort of came up in a very simple way. He came up with an idea of looking at, you know, the the, the way that people were rewarded, the the way the leadership was communicating value, the way they were recognizing value over time, and, and also looking at how companies can kind of grow that. And so so he was trying to classify it, um, not saying that one is exactly one or the other, there's always uh, some dominance here, but he was able to sort of uh, classify it into a couple of different uh, key components, I guess you can call it. And I thought it was, it was really interesting how he did it. So the, the four components he had was uh, the first one, I think he called the cultivation or uh, you know, he called it a cultivation culture, where the idea here was about enablement. It was about uh, working together as a team. Uh, it, it, it was really kind of an interesting, you know, he, the way he looked at it was kind of like a coach, a, a person who's in the in a cultivation cult is is, is, is charismatic, is inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting, and, and very often he would he would talk about that as a way to to inspire people to go above and beyond, things like that. And, uh, and we, we've heard about companies that are in the cultivation realm, if you will. I think Apple under Steve Jobs is probably a good example of someone who would be there. Um, yeah. Then there would be competence culture, which would be a typical sort of, um, well, the, the smartest person in the room is the one who makes the decision. You know, we only hire the best and, and the brightest. And at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's the data uh, and, and then the smartest person who rules. I think mm-hmm. Google typically comes in that category they, you know, the way they hire people is very often through you know, algorithms and word problems and things like that uh, yep. university yep. environments could be another situation where a competence a culture might be ruling and, and, and sometimes you hear situations where you know, maybe a superior officer will, will have a, a, a certain opinion and then someone who's uh, inferior to, to him or her uh, f- from a rank perspective could actually say hey here's what I've seen and here's my data to back it up and that person will actually win the argument because of that. That's uh, yes. a typical example of a competence culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And then control culture is what we probably look at as more traditional top-down management. That's mm-hmm. kind of where uh, you know, military is a typical example of a control culture, or I think that's starting to change as well, where mm-hmm. the idea is that the person with the highest rank, the person with the most experience is the person you will follow. You don't really question that. Uh, like you don 't want necessarily a, a corporal to declare war on Russia, you know not a good idea. you probably want yeah. that to be going mm-hmm. up the ranks so uh, before you do anything uh, drastic so so that would be an example of that. Uh, the control culture being very top down and sort of structured and, and very clear in its uh, sort of ranks uh, and and then the collaboration culture uh, which which is something that I think we 've gotten a lot more uh, traction lately, which is really the leader as as the coach it 's really about. Um, integration of ideas—it's it's the idea of creating customer value through, th- through having really deep collaboration between people from different areas. Um, you know, I think they talk about sometimes sports teams can fall into that category, and I think sports teams are actually not a bad analogy to agile organizations because talk about a diverse set of skills. You know, each of these people, whatever team you're thinking of, whether it's American football or soccer or Volleyball, for that matter, they all have their unique skills, knowledge, and abilities, and you need to somehow make sure you can make this work as a whole, and that's what I think they're talking about
0: in the collaboration culture. Kind of puts us nicely on the next slide. Of um, there's many things that in the space, or well, in the agile space and traditional space, which are kind of touch upon this, but they all kind of don't quite get there. We just talked about HR systems, um, while I still believe there's much uh, great value in uh, individual appreciation, individual um, uh, kind of feedback, it doesn't aggregate to a team level and doesn't help the team take on ownership of their future and of their diversity.
1: I think you're right. And, and that's uh, what's starting to happen now is I think HR is recognizing that. So you could see a lot of change. You, you probably heard about agile HR is becoming a thing yes. now. Uh, they're mm-hmm. also recognizing that uh, they need to up their game uh, which I think is, is, is wonderful. I think we're going to get a lot of great support and alignment from HR in, in the future. Um, you know, I was talking to one person, this is probably about three months ago, and she was, uh, she was the head of HR for one company and she got a new job. And uh, what she was called was uh, CTR. Uh, no, CTO was what she would call it. And, I, and I was thinking, CTO is that chief technology officer? And she said, no, I'm being called the chief transformation officer. And I was like, whoa, that's great. And I was like, well, is that because you're not working in HR anymore? And she's like, no, that is, that is the that role is of HR. HR. Yeah, yes, that is exactly. HR. Exactly. We are, I am the chief transformation officer because I am in HR. And I was like, that is awesome. And I, I think, we, you know, at the end of the day, this, uh, people is core to all of this, just, just like you said. And, and in HR, you know, if they can't be part of that, like, where should they be? So, yes. so I think that's, that's wonderful to see things like that.
0: Yeah. Then you've got traditional survey tools like your survey monkeys and all those kinds of things, which are really just blank slates. And I think the, the most important thing here is not the tool, but the method inside it, the, the, the ideas and, and the way that you actually ask questions and things like that. So while this is still an option, it doesn't really uh, take world's best practice and apply it in an easy to consume format. It's
1: true, and and the thing about surveys that that I, I'm now a lot more uh, humble about is that, you know, creating a question isn't as easy as you might think,
0: no, uh, because it's not you might at all. not
1: be measuring what you think you're measuring, and and, and yep. that that can be really scary, uh, and it can also waste a lot of people's time if you you know crafting a good question, and then later on being able to validate that that question actually measures what it's supposed to is actually a uh, something that data scientists do. And it's a it's, profession, mm-hmm. and it's a craft, and it's something that I think we may have taken a little bit lightly. I think SurveyMonkey is an excellent platform for creating surveys, um, but I also think it can be harmful if you, if you, if you use that um, without some intention. So, uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. good to get some feedback, but uh, I, I think we've got to be careful with, uh, with, with how, you, how you craft those
0: questions mm-hmm. and what you do with them. You hit it on the nail here it's the actual question which is important um, then we also have our retros which while we love retros um, are, are localized and sometimes forgotten i mean the team i, I would always say that i'm not we're not saying that retros aren't necessary because i believe they are but how do you actually aggregate that data and also compare and, and see growth over time
1: Completely agree. I mean, f- retrospectives are, are super important. I think, in if I mean, if you think of some of the data that we've been able to do through comparative agility, you actually found that retrospectives are absolutely positively correlated to uh, higher customer satisfaction, to more team productivity, and and to team velocity. So, so it's mm-hmm. it's a really positive thing. Now, that means that those retrospectives are done regularly, and also that action is being taken on those retrospectives yes. i think very often this becomes one of those ceremonies that people just kind of do but they don't always take action on the outcomes of those retrospectives and that can be i think a huge problem because then it becomes more of a pitching session it can be frustrating yeah. uh, and it can actually be counterproductive but uh, but retrospectives by themselves are really important and problem is we, we probably don't take them seriously enough very often
0: I agree. It sometimes seem like an afterthought in a lot of the cases rather than you know a core part of the, of, of what we do. Um, let's not forget, I mean, aside from retro items, you've got your actual day job to do as well. That's right. There's all that, all those things that need to be done, all those stories that need to be written or, or, or whatever it is that you do. But um, that's why I feel like without an actual, uh, while I don't want to focus on tools too much, I think without being, the team being effectively re, uh, Resourced with tools and, or, or methods to take the, the, whole, the burden of managing retros away, um, they'll, they'll be much more successful if they have something that, that helps them through that journey as well, but also um, provides much more uh, comparative understanding of data over time. Because, I mean, the way I see comparative agility seating is actually on top of retros. You'll still do your retros every week or every or whatever your cadence is. But doing that uh, actual collection of data every three months actually enhances the overall process.
1: Yeah, I think you're completely right. It's a complement to retrospectives. And it also gives you a bigger picture. So you can look at things at the team level. You can look at things at the program level or even the organizational level. Uh, yes. At the end of the day, it just gives you insights that you probably didn't have before. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that data that those kind of insights is is fuel to continuous improvement it's really hard to mm-hmm. to, to do any type of improvement if you don't know what you're improving uh, mm-hmm. and and that's part of the challenge we have today there's so many things you can focus on and we know what happens if you focus on too many things you just don't get to get anything done so I think mm-hmm. the one thing that we can try to do through through meaningful data is to try to focus our efforts kind of separate the signal from the noise and it's really do that really well. I think that that's the beginning. I, of I think
0: that's a really good point. Also, it's something that I often fear in retros is the psychological safety to actually say what I really mean. Right. And uh, I, I do think that's understated that the psychological safety there isn't always present. And then, how would you know if it's not? Without some sort of other channel where people can be anonymously, if they want to, tell us say what they really think. And I think that's where comparative Julie can actually enhance that entire process by creating. Seeing if what we're seeing, well, what's coming out of people's mouths in person actually matches the anonymous data, which we're getting uh, through another tool.
1: That's right, which is very agile. I mean, the thing that I love about agile is it doesn't necessarily solve your problems, but it makes them very visible. So yes. once these problems have come out in the open, then it's up to us as, as professionals to deal with those problems. But agile in itself doesn't solve your problems. They're still going to be no. there. They're just going to no. make them very visible. And it's similar I- with comparative agility
0: yeah hopefully it just gets you on the on the path of the right problems
1: that's right just, that's right exactly. Yeah.
0: exactly aside from retro items you've got your actual day job to do as well that's right. um, there's all that, all those things that need to be done all those stories that need to be written or, or, or whatever it is that you do but um that's why I feel like without an actual uh, while i don't want to focus on tools too much, I think without being the team being effectively re, uh, resourced with tools and or, or methods to take the the whole the burden of managing retros away, um, they'll they'll be much more successful if they have something that that helps them through that journey as well, but also um, provides much more uh, comparative understanding of data over time. Because I mean, the way I see comparative agility seating is actually on top of retros. You'll still do your retros every week or every or whatever your cadence is, but doing that uh, actual collection of data every three months actually enhances the overall process.
1: Yeah, I think you're completely right. It, it's a complement to retrospectives. And, and it also gives you a, a bigger picture. So you can look at things at the team level. You can look at things at the program level or even the organizational level. Uh, yes. At the end of the day, it just gives you insights that you probably didn't have before. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that data, that, those kind of insights is is fuel to continuous improvement. It's really hard to, mm-hmm. to, to do any type of improvement if you don't know what you're improving. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's part of the challenge we have today. There's so many things you can focus on. And we know what happens if you focus on too many things. You just don't get to get anything done. So I think mm-hmm. the one thing that we can try to do through, through meaningful data is to try to focus our efforts, kind of separate the signal from the noise and just really do that really well. I think that, That's the beginning. I, of I, I think
0: that's a really good point also. It's something that I often fear in retros is the psychological safety to actually say what I really mean. Right. And uh, I, I do think that's understated that the psychological safety there isn't always present, and then how would you know if it's not without some sort of other channel where people can anonymously, if they want to, tell us, say what they really think? And I think that's where Comparative jilly can actually enhance that entire process by creating, seeing if what we're seeing, what's coming out of people's mouths in person actually matches the anonymous data, which we're getting uh, through another tool.
1: That's right, which is very agile. I mean, the thing that I love about agile is it doesn't necessarily solve your problems, but it makes them very visible. So yes. once these problems have come out in the open, then it's up to us as, as professionals to deal with those problems. But Agile in itself doesn't solve your problems. They're still gonna be no. there. They're just gonna no. make them very visible. And It's similar Hope, with comparative agility.
0: Yeah, hopefully it just gets you on the, on the path of the right problems. That's,
1: that's right, that's right, exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the way that we do this is by collecting the data, which was worth saying, this is a very small part of, well, the be- not a small part, but the beginning of the entire process. After that, you will find the narrative of what, you know, stitch this together. We have seen this data over here, this data over here, and, and go around this whole cycle in order to actually take action. We'll just dive into, this, um, dive into this now. So the first step is to collect your data, which is where the tool comes into it.
1: That's um, right. So what we see here is a very simple report. I just thought it would be nice to at least have an example so we can kind of go through it end to end. And yep. There's lots of other things you can do, but essentially what's happening here is that there's a team here, and, and this is actually real data. I, I've changed the name of the team, though, because they, they didn't want me to, <laughs> to expose yes. who they were, what company they were working for, but it's, it's real data. This is a team, uh, Team Dolphins, from May 2018, who's comparing themselves uh, from, uh, fr- from May to, to December 2017. So it's one team at two, two different points in time. And what you see here is every time that uh, the team from May is indicating they're doing better, it's gonna be positive. It's gonna be above the zero, and it's gonna be blue bars. So they're doing fairly well here. And every time they indicate they're doing worse, it's gonna be negative, or in this case, uh, sort of orange bars, below the bar. And, and you know, right off the bat, you can, you can get a, an idea what's going on. You can see that in most cases, they're probably doing better than before, which is really positive. Yeah. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's a great thing. Uh, and you can look at a little spider graph to kind of get some perspective. And you can see if you, if you unclink the world index, kind of look at the data set here for May 2018, you can see that, you know, in most of these uh, these dimensions, they're doing quite well. In technical practices probably struggling a bit. Uh, some issues probably with quality. You can overlay the world index and you can see that they're doing better than the world index in most of these. But, you know, there's not so great here when it comes to technical practices and, and quality uh, if you overlay this, you can could, you could see that even though the world index is probably something they do better than, uh, world index is kind of a messy place. That's the, 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 the truth of what's going on out there, which is uh, sometimes ugly. So I wouldn't necessarily say that the world index is what you should strive for. But you mm-hmm. can see that in most cases, they're actually doing better than what they did in uh, 2017. So positive overall. But that being said... There's certainly things that you can dig into here. And one of those, if you look at teamwork, there's quite a few things you can zoom in a bit. Uh, It looks like in uh, teamwork management, for instance, uh, you see a couple of things stand out. Here's one statement here. Management sets goals, but doesn't tell team members how to achieve them. This is something where the team is indicating that compared to what they did in December 2017, this is no longer taking place. This is actually happening now at at a less frequent rate than before. They're saying now mm-hmm. that management are now actually not just setting goals; they're actually telling people how to do their work, which we know is yep. sort of an anti-pattern. Yep. So, you know, let's say if you did this analysis, you can dig into this data and find all sorts of other things as well. You see, there's some other things here, but for the sake of this exercise, how about we just went down and we, let's say we focus on this one first, and we said, all right, here we have an hypothesis. We we, we can see that this is happening; it's standing out. If we look at For instance, the average score, it's a low score, 2.71. That's a really low score on a five-point scale. If we look at the distributional characteristics, I mean, look at this, this is a very wide bar, which tells us that the team members really aren't agreeing with with each other on this particular question. So as a coach, this is probably something we should talk about a little bit deeper.
0: I love this slide. Uh, The question is, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this change? are you ready for this honesty?
1: This is true. This is scary. I mean, this is one of those things where anyway, I do talk to organizations sometimes that, that are very, very top down and really don't want to necessarily hear the bad news. And this, mm-hmm. this is where I have to tell them that, you know, comparative agility is going to definitely help you shine a light on things. But if you don't have an, an environment where people can feel comfortable talking about these things, if, if you can't speak up, if you don't feel like you can say, you know what, this is not working, then whatever efforts you do are going to be very short term in nature. They're Mm -hmm. not going to be sustainable. You're not going to create that culture unless you create that environment where you are actually open to change and open to hearing sometimes uncomfortable news. And that's the, that's the caution of this, which, which kind of leads to this next slide, which is really all about Mm. psychological safety because that underpins a lot
0: of this. The thing I talk about with people though, when it comes to this, is their old, uh phrase no pain no gain (laughs) without change change is painful and change is uncomfortable but that's the point of it and that's why we do it that's right as we said at the beginning we've got to be comfortable with that with being uncomfortable but um it it takes more than just saying it you've got to feel it as well
1: you're right and it can be very uncomfortable for you know for 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 managers often because i think managers feel that they do have a certain you know an added responsibility here. Uh, and yeah. and that, that's probably true. And then when, when they hear from their team members or from their uh, p- the people that they work with that they're not happy with the way things are, that they are pointing out all these, these areas of improvement, uh, that can be uncomfortable, uh, especially if you didn't know about this. Uh, maybe this wasn't very clear, maybe this wasn't uh, articulated before. And then you can feel that, oh, things are great, I'm doing awesome. Uh, now suddenly you're hearing that it wasn't as great as you always thought it was. And, and that can be a little bit uncomfortable. I, I totally understand that. But, um, but like mm-hmm. you said, you know, at the end of the day, that is, that is part of what we do here, to be comfortable with, with continuously changing the way we work.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean, the term is psychological safety. And here you've got the a quote from Amy Edmondson. Psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes
1: yes this this sounds maybe obvious to some degree but honestly it is it is so powerful and it's not just it's not just the humiliation like oh that's a silly idea things like that but it's also the punishment that people Mm -hmm. will say you know hey you know that's that guy uh once again saying this and that and and let's just ignore what he or she has to say uh, let's make sure that that person doesn't come up for promotion next time. Uh, let's label that person as not a team player. I mean, you've probably heard all these phrases before, but that, that's things that organizations will do sometimes. If you're one of those people that speak up, uh, you might be shut down in many different ways. They can ridicule you. They can, they can punish you. Uh, but what it does uh, is is very nefarious and very harmful because it makes it so that others who see this will then not speak up and rather just keep quiet. Um, you know, there was a, there's a recent case that, uh, that we've heard a lot about now is the, the Boeing case, you know, the Boeing Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a classic example of a lack of psychological safety because there were many people, and they found this now through the investigation, many people in the lower chains here that saw the issues happening with that particular software and the way it wasn't handling you know, that, that situation really well, but they didn't feel that they could speak up. They didn't feel like they yeah. could say something because they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel like that was appropriate in that environment. So they rather just kept quiet and let this happen. And, and of course, that ultimately ended up causing you know, several hundred people's lives. So yeah. this is not a small thing. And especially in knowledge work, especially in, in, in complex environments like we work in, this is, yes. this is absolutely crucial intentions and, and and being open mm-hmm. when you when you make mistakes. I think part of the reason she came up with this this research uh, this was actually done in, back in the late 90s uh, what uh, what Dr. Amy Edmondson was uh, was studying was was hospitals. Uh, she mm-hmm. done most of her work in, in the healthcare industry and what she found is she was looking at you know the way you look at success in terms of uh, whether or not you're successful as a hospital especially if you think of surgery it, it's really you know death rate is one thing that come up but also yep. Uh, the, the, the rate of return, essentially. So once a patient comes out of surgery, uh, what is the rate uh, of which that person comes back again uh, shortly yep. thereafter? Because if the mm-hmm. surgery is successful, you don't have to come back. And what she found, uh, and that really surprised her, is that she was looking at these hospitals, and she saw that in with, with those hospitals that actually had the best uh, outcomes, made the most mistakes, <laughs> And and, and she thought that was really strange. She's like, what's going on? She she had to go through this, and she crunched the numbers several times. And she realized that when it comes to mistakes, such as, you know, uh, maybe there were certain things dropped, or there was a wrong dosage done at a certain point in time, or there was lots of little mistakes that were more frequent among those hospitals and those teams that had the best outcomes. And she was saying, "What? how is this possible? And what she found after digging into it was that, of course, everyone makes mistakes, but it was Mm -hmm. the hospitals with a larger degree of psychological safety who felt comfortable reporting it. So those other hospitals who had the worst rates in terms of death rates and really serious negative outcomes, they also made the mistakes. They just didn't report it because they just kept quiet so Mm -hmm. these other hospitals actually did really well they yeah they made mistakes nobody's flawless psychological safety doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes but it makes it makes it so that you can actually speak up you can report on it you can take action on it and you can improve based on it and that's what those hospitals were doing and that's why they were making more mistakes you know on paper than those who who simply weren't reporting it at all and just keeping
0: quiet Mm -hmm.
1: so i think that's a problem
0: Yeah, if you don't know if there's a problem, you can never find a solution.
1: Exactly, it's exactly right, and it it, it takes me back to you know an example I use in the in the book, which is you know, when I was looking at the Toyota plant in Indiana, and I remember going through that plant. They were doing uh, lift trucks, and it was a you know for me a really great environment because I, I you know i'm kind of a nerd when it comes to lean and agile and things like that kind of walking through the Toyota plant felt like yeah. you know nirvana for me uh, and then i was talking to the the chief engineer and i was asking about defects and how he sort of treated those and he was saying you know we, we're kind of you know kind of smiling at me in a funny way and he was saying you know we're, we're kind of thinking of calling these defects treasures and i said oh Treasures? Okay, that's funny. I mean, <laughs> is that kind of like the way we used to call bugs features? You know, is that what you're doing? Yeah. And he said, no, no, it's nothing like that. We, we actually call them treasures because these teeth defects are giving us information against our system that we did not know about. And these defects are telling us, here's something that's wrong. And if you take those defects seriously and you fix them and you find the root cause of them, that system will now be much, much better than before. So that defect is a gift. It's a treasure. It helps us make a better system. And I think mm-hmm. that was such a great way of looking at defects and looking, looking at how he sort of embraced those defects, those, those errors, if you will, those mistakes. It was actually viewed as a positive thing that we could get those exposed, get them out there, deal with them so they don't have to ha- happen again. And then as a result of that, we have a much better system rather than putting it under the carpet, pretending it's not there, ultimately, until it blows up.
0: I I like that mindset that inside every defect, there's an improvement, which means eventually more value.
1: That's right. It's a treasure. And of course, it's only a treasure if you actually take that defect seriously and fix the root cause of it. Now, if you just Mm -hmm. look at the defect and say, oh, that's a defect and then keep moving. That's a different story. But uh, again, if you feel empowered to make those changes, and uh, so that that defect doesn't occur again, then that's learning, which is, of course, what what this is
0: all about. We're we're kind of coming to the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought uh, you know, at the end of the day, this this is probably what our conversation is about. You know, we we agree that change isn't optional. This is not something we can do because we we we, we may feel like it. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I don't think we have a choice anymore. I think agility and agile. Continuous improvement. These are things that is just part of business. I think if you think that that's something you can do as an optional thing, something you shouldn't take very seriously, then I question whether or not you're going to survive. I think it is. Um, What's it? Darwin who said something like survival. What, what did he say? He said survival isn't mandatory. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's up to you whether or not you want yeah. to continuously improve. Because if you choose not to, you know the option is there for you. So uh, I well, think the,
0: the choice that we made for you, whether you make the choice or not.
1: That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. So we talked about culture. I think uh, you, you brought up some slides there earlier, and I think that that's really important. At the end of the day, I think the, the, the creating that culture is something that leaders need to take. You know, mm-hmm. and They take, the, they take a responsibility in that sense. And, and I think the data is just one of those things, one of those inputs that can help us Guide that transformation. I think it can accelerate things. You uh, can be more intentional. I think that that's uh, that's what you, your point was about the shortcut. It can it can mm-hmm. really you can accelerate those conversations more yes. quickly
0: than Absolutely. if you just kind
1: of really, really go in there. Um, yeah. And again, it's not about getting answers out of this. It's about those conversations. Got to make it safe so people can express their opinions. And then this quote here is, at the end is actually something I got from Mike Cone it says agile is not something you become it's something you become more of and i think that's a mm-hmm. that's a it's a beautiful way to say it it's it's a continuous improvement process it's not so, it's not a destination like you said earlier
0: yeah absolutely um it's uh, and and it's, you can't underline this enough because we people do feel like um are oh, we can t- we can tick this box and something we're now agile doesn't work like that. It's going to be something that, as a part of the, continue, the exponential curve of technology, consumer taste changes, globalization, there's always going to be more to learn, more to grow.
1: Exactly. And then this is why we have, have been trying to avoid maturity models. I think very often people say, oh, mm-hmm. can't you translate comparative agility into a maturity model? And then you can say, now we're awesome, now we're agile. And, and I really work against that because I, I, it's not that simple. It's not like you can say, all right, You're now checking these boxes and you're agile and done. It's just not that way. You Mm -hmm. can always improve the way you work and it's a continuous journey and it's it's not as simple as just saying, you know, here, you're excellent. Um, And I also think when people use these different terms, sometimes they'll say, you know, walk, crawl, run, that kind of thing. I think that could be, I think that could be a little bit uh, insulting for companies who might be in a, in a crawl state. Uh, You know what? They may be as agile as they can be at that point. And that doesn't mean they're crawling. It means they're a successful company at their stage in their journey uh, and, and where they go next is up to them. I don't think it's fair for for us uh, from outside to tell them that you're not agile. I mean, if they're more agile today than they were yesterday in my book, they're agile. They're on that journey Uh, then.
0: I've had this conversation many times and in my courses, I've said the same, very similar thing. It's not, the question is, is not, are we agile? The question is, how agile can we be? That's right.
1: Exactly. Are you more agile today than you were yesterday? Back to that Correct. statement that my made. That is the essence of agility. And it's not about whether you're in a certain stage or not. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's something that people have a hard time sometimes grasping because they want these simple answers where you can just sort of say, okay, here's where we are. This is, this is the magic and, and, and we're done or, or, or you know, it's, it's just not that simple.
0: So based on this talk, hopefully people are a little more agile tomorrow than they were today uh, by all the information that we've been giving them. And the next step that we'd really recommend is just to sign up for a comparative, at, sign up for an account at comparative at agility, comparative agility. It's hard to get in one mouthful, <laughs> but uh, you, there's a free account to start with. You can try out all of these surveys, see what works right for you. Um, and start that journey.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would strongly encourage you to try it out. And it's, it's one of those things, so like you said, it's free. So, you know, you can try it for up to five uh, collectors uh, without costing you anything. And then you can see if you find value out of it. And I, I think absolutely, we've been trying to make it very agile in the sense that, you know, if, if companies want to try a pilot or something like that, it's completely free as well. And the thing that I have found is that there's not a single company who's actually done this who has said that, you know, it wasn't worth it I don't know, $240 a year <laughs> to do this. Mm-hmm. Because if you make a single change, you already paid yes. for the tool many times over. And, and that that insight, those insights that come from that data in itself is, is worth it. So, yeah, I, I that, totally think it's worth it.
0: I believe it's what the missing tool inside any Agile Teams framework. You've usually got your task management tool, whether it's you know uh, Jira or Pivotal Track or whatever it is, but there's no tool the team really has for managing and improving team health and continuous improvement. I, I I really feel this is the missing, missing piece.
1: No, thank you. I I, I think, uh, I'm glad you like it. I I certainly have found it to be useful in my career. I was, I was a client before, before I became part of this, so, <laughs> so I'll, I'm a big fan.
0: Yeah, me too. And if people want to learn a bit more about the five pillars that we were talking about before, we only really lightly got into two of them, but I'd highly recommend you pick up uh, George Jorgen's book, it's first book, uh, the, the book I use, um, I've recommended to every single person that I've uh, taught agility or oh, agile transformation to, um, and it's pretty much available everywhere.
1: I think it is, and, and thank you for saying that. Uh, I mean that means a lot, Simon. It, it's uh, it took me two and a half years to write that thing. Uh, what I can say, it is it's it's an honest and and sometimes maybe too too honest account of mm. of, of an insider's perspective. I really tried to not look at this as a consultant because I, I wasn't a consultant when I wrote it. Uh, I I was an insider and I I was sort of kind of tired of people coming from the outside telling me how easy this should be and I wanted to sort of say okay for all those people that are in the middle of a transformation or about to start a transformation I wanted to give them very practical ideas of how this actually works from the inside so that that's Mm -hmm. who this is for any change leader uh, whether it's an executive or a team member or a program manager or, or an agile coach how this works from from your perspective and then uh, taking a lot of examples from from colleagues from other organizations too and try to find some patterns that might be helpful
0: i think it's important the the thing that i got out of it most was agile transformations or or whatever you're going to call it can often take multi-years multiple failures multiple horizons as people call them trying to gem those five years of learnings let's say into a a couple hundred pages is extremely valuable because you get that bird's eye view of what's going to happen, what to expect, all the different areas you're going to touch on. Yes, it'll be unable to bite off one chunk at a time, but at least you have that understanding of the map of the of the region. You can decide where to go from there.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that. And and I try to 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 spend some time outlining a lot of the resources that I used because there's you know there's only so much you can do in one book. But I wanted to say, okay, here's here's the key resources that I was consulting as I was going through this. And so i outline them there as well i mean we all stand on the shoulders of giants here and yes, so i try absolutely. to really highlight that because there's there's a lot of great literature out there but buying all those books at <laughs> once it can be very overwhelming so i think it's good to yeah. kind of have something to start with and then you can pick and choose which you want to dig, dig get deeper into
0: awesome well it's been a fantastic time uh, really appreciated you taking the time to talk with us Jorgen. Um, just anyone out there who's listening right now, uh, get in contact on LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, we're happy to, um, uh, talk, ask questions, meet, whatever. Um, but, uh, the most important thing here is to keep the conversation going. Um, and thank you for your time, Jorgen.
1: Well, thank you, Simon. This was great. It was, just, uh, kind of felt like we were sitting in a bar having a beer and which, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> this was a lot of fun.
0: I, I really appreciate well, you taking the time. Well, I'll fly to Oslo and we can do that for real.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I love that idea very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, thank you.